This is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome to Wealth Wake Up Live. start out with our weekly wrap. And it was a losing week for the stock market as investors digested Fed Chair Powell's testimony before Congress, the February employment report, and news of SVB's financial Silicon Valley Bank being shut down. Downside moves this week had the S&P 500 slice through its support of the 50-day moving average and then its 200-day moving average. The market started to get a bit shaky after Fed Powell's share Powell's remarks at the Senate Banking Committee and the House Financial Services Committee had investors rethinking the possibility of a 50 basis point, that would be a half a percent hike, at their March FOMC meeting. Participants took notice of the following remarks from his prepared testimony. He said, although inflation has been moderating in recent months, the process of getting inflation back down to 2% has a long way to go and is likely to be bumpy. As I mentioned, the latest economic data have come in stronger than expected, which suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates is likely to be higher than previously anticipated. If the totality of the data were to indicate that faster tightening is warranted, we would be prepared to increase the pace of rate hikes. Restoring price stability will likely require that we maintain a restrictive stance of monetary policy for some time. Again, that's a quote from Fed Chair Powell. Mr. Powell, in the question and answer portion of his testimony, acknowledged that it's likely that the ultimate rate of the Fed writes down in its summary of economic projections at the March meeting is likely to be higher than what it was written down at the December meeting. He also added that the economic data thus far suggests that the Fed has not over-tightened and still has more work to do. Notably, the Fed Fund's future market saw an abrupt turn in expectations for the March FOMC meeting, pricing in at a 78.6% probability of a half a point hike versus just 31.9% before the Fed Chair Powell's testimony. The reaction to Fed Chair Powell's remarks was jarring enough for the capital markets, but things would get even more challenging in the wake of news on Thursday that SVB's financial, SIVB, was seeking to raise capital after it saw elevated cash burn from its clients. That news was disconcerting for market participants, knowing that something typically breaks when the Fed is in an aggressive tightening cycle, and that the bank's whether they are a specific problem in that regard, will likely get pulled into it nonetheless, given their lending role. About 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, that would be 9.30 our time yesterday morning, it was announced that SVB Financial Group's Silicon Valley Bank was shut down by the FDIC. They created a deposit insurance National Bank of Santa Clara to protect insured depositors of Silicon Valley Bank, Santa Clara, California. <clears throat> that news contributed to added flight of safety interest in the Treasury market and further prompted market participants to rein in their risk exposure amid concerns about possible effects. The two-year note yield declined 27 basis points this week to 4.59%. The 10-year note dropped 26 basis points to 3.7%. And with the fallout surrounding the SVB financial, the Fed Fund's future market pivoted back to thinking that the Fed is likely to raise rates by only a quarter of a percent at the FOMC meeting in March. To that end, the CME FedWatch tool indicates that only 39.5% probability now of a 50 basis point increase. The SCP financial situation largely overshadowed the relatively pleasing February employment report on Friday that was accentuated with stronger-than-expected non-farm payrolls and weaker-than-expected average hourly earnings growth. The S&P 500 settled Friday near its lowest levels of the week with the losses in all 11 sectors. 
And for the week, the worst performing sector was the financial sector, which declined 8.5%, followed by a 7.6% decline in materials, 7% drop in real estate, 5.6% decline in consumer discretionary, 5.4% decline in the energy sector, and a 4.5% drop in the industrial sector. And the best performing sector this week was the consumer staples sector, which was down 1.9%. So let's look at some truncated summaries of some of the daily action this week. On Monday, Monday's trade started for a more upbeat note. The main indices enjoyed a positive standing in the early going, supported by gains in some mega-cap stocks. Apple led the charge in that respect after Goldman Sachs initiated coverage with a buy rating of $199 price target. Things are more shaky under the surface, though. Investors played a waiting game ahead of key events later this week. Even at midday, when the main indices traded near their best levels of the day, decliners led advancers by a 4-3 to three margin at the New York Stock Exchange and a 5-3 to three margin at the NASDAQ. Underlying weakness became more apparent as mega-cap strength started to fade. This coincided with selling efforts ramping up in the Treasury market. The main indices spent most of the afternoon in a slow grind lower, ultimately selling near their lows for the day. And at the close, decliners led advancers by roughly a 2-to-1 margin at both the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. Monday's economic data was limited to the January factory orders, which declined 1.6% month-over-month, followed by a downward revised 1.7% increase, and that was from 1.8% in December. Shipments of manufacturers goods increased 7 tenths of 1% month-over-month after declining 6 tenths of 1% in December. And the key takeaway from the report was the strength and rebound seen in non-defense capital goods, excluding aircraft. Shipments of these same goods with factors into the GDP forecast were at 1.1% after declining six-tenths of 1% in December. And Tuesday's trade started somewhat mixed, with investors anxiously waiting Fed Chair Powell's testimony before the Senate Banking Committee. The tone of the market shifted markedly after the release of the Fed Chair's prepared remarks at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, followed by his testimony shortly thereafter. Both the stock and bond market reacted strongly to his following comments. He said, although inflation has been moderating in recent months, the process of getting inflation back down to 2% is a long way to go, is likely to be bumpy. As I mentioned in the last, latest economic data have come in stronger than expected, which suggests the ultimate level of interest rates is likely to be higher than previously anticipated. If the totality of the data were to indicate that faster tightening is warranted, we would be prepared to increase the pace of rate hikes. Restoring price stability will likely require that we maintain a restrictive stance of monetary policy for some time. So Fed Chair Powell would add in the question answer portion of his testimony that the economic data this far doesn't suggest the Fed has over-tightened. Indeed, the data suggests the Fed has more work to do. He also acknowledged that it is likely that the ultimate rate of Fed hikes write-downs in the summary of his economic projections for the March meeting is likely to be higher than was written down in the December meeting. The upsetting factor was that Fed Chair Powell's remarks suggest the market was still underestimated where the terminal rate will fall. In addition, it was forced to contend with understanding that a 50 basis point rate hike in March FOMC money in in the meeting is back on the table. So looking at Tuesday's economic data, we saw the January wholesale inventories were down four-tenths of 1% month over month as expected, followed by a one-tenth of 1% increase in December. Consumer credit increased to $14.8 billion in January, following a downward revised $10.6 billion in December. The key takeaway from the report is the pace of credit expansion is moderating in face of rising interest rates. The $14.8 billion increase in January was driven predominantly by revolving credit. It was the second lowest increase in the 12 months. The lowest was in the month of December. We'll be back in a minute. Dick Donnie here with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here on KGMI. Don't miss this Saturday sale today at DeWard and Bodie in Bellingham and Burlington. Today only, DeWard and Bodie will pay your sales tax on select appliances and mattresses. Plus, combine this offer with special no-interest financing for two full years on qualifying purchases. That's right, for one day only, pay no money down and no interest for two full years. And let DeWard and Bodie pay your sales tax at checkout when you purchase qualifying appliances and mattresses. You'll find specially marked savings on washers and dryers, refrigerators, wall ovens, cooktops, rain 
changes, and so much more in stock and on sale. Upgrade and save today at DeWard & Bodie with special cashback rebates on appliance pairs and packages. Like up to $300 cashback on select laundry sets from GE, Whirlpool, Maytag, and Electrolux. Or up to a $100 instant cashback rebate on select KitchenAid and Bosch dishwashers. You'll find these exclusive savings and more only at DeWard & Bodie's Saturday sale going on now at all three stores in Bellingham and Burlington. Financing OAC offer qualifications and restrictions apply. COVID-19 has tested our communities in unthinkable ways. In the face of crisis, Puget Sound Energy has given over 18 million in bill assistance to customers impacted by the pandemic, and together with PSC Foundation, gave 4 million in community grants for COVID relief. All the while, PSC continues to lead on clean energy, with a goal to reach beyond net zero carbon emissions by 2045. It's part of our commitment to doing what's right for customers and communities. Together, we're creating a clean energy future for all. Learn more at psc.com slash together. KPUG is the sports leader, bringing you complete coverage of the Seahawks, Mariners, Huskies, and our high school athletes. We put you in the stands of the biggest games, including the Super Bowl, the World Series, March Madness, and state championships. Plus, KPUG features the best in sports analysis and entertainment, from Dan Patrick and Jim Rome to Mike Greenberg and our own Mark Skolton. If it's happening in sports, it's on. KPUG 1170, 97.9 FM, kpug1170.com The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. And I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free And I won't forget the men who died who gave that right to me and I gladly stand up Welcome back to World Wake Up Live with Johnny Hughes Wealth advisor, certified financial planner, credit investment fiduciary, all those nice little designations here with you this Saturday morning. We're Asset Advisors. We're located out on the Pacific Highway in the Pacific Commerce Center. That's out next to Wilson's Furniture. Our address is 5060 Pacific Highway, Suite 101, Ferndale, 98248. Our phone number, 360-733-1200. And check out our website at wealthwakeup.com. So continuing on with some of our economic reports for this week, on Wednesday, there was not a lot of conviction behind Wednesday's trade as investors digested day two of the Fed Chair Powell's testimony before the House Financial Services Committee. The main indices spent the majority of the session trading either slightly above or slightly below their flat lines. The lackluster paced action was due to the Treasury market signaling concerns that the Fed possibly taking rates too high and forcing a recession. Tuesday's settlement levels brought the twos and 10-year spreads, that's two and 10-year bond spreads, down to its widest margin since 1981, and things didn't get any better on Wednesday. The 10-year note moved up to the challenge to 4% level again, following a 32 billion 10-year note reopening, which did not go over so well in auction. The high yield of 3.985% at the auction tallied when tailed and the then issued yield of 3.958 by nearly three basis points on relatively weak dollar demand. The bid to cover ratio was 2.35% versus the rate prior auction average of 2.43. With that move, stock prices deteriorated and major indices slipped to trade closer to their lows of the session. The main indices were able to close comfortably above their lows, though, thanks to a mega-cap-driven rally effort taking root in the last hour of trading. The upside momentum eventually petered out, with the S&P 500 almost hit its 50-day moving average of 3,997, which pivoted Tuesday from support to resistance. Here's a review of economics, Wednesday's economic data. The weekly MBA mortgage application index rose 7.4%, with refinancing applications increasing 9% and purchase applications rising 7%. And the ADP employment change showed that payroll, private payrolls rose 242,000 in February, following a revised 119,000 increase in January, and that was increased from 106,000. And the trade deficit for January widened to $68.3 billion from an upward revised $67.2 billion as imports were, 16, were $9.6 billion more than December imports and exports were $8.5 billion more than December exports. 
The key takeaway from the report is that both imports and exports increased versus December, reflecting a pickup in global trade activity that is a reflection of increased demand. The JOLTS report, which is the job openings total, totaled 10.824 million in January, following a revised 11.234 million in December. And the weekly uh, crude oil inventory showed a draw of 1.69 billion barrels, down from last week's build of 1.7 billion. And on Thursday, the stock market made an attempt to start Thursday's session in an upbeat note, bolstered by the leadership from the mega-cap stocks and some hope that higher-than-expected initial jobless claims reading could be followed following Friday with a weaker-than-expected non-farm payrolls number of February. That opening move was short-lived, however, as some disconcerting news and price action in the banking space undermined investor confidence. Banks led a broad-based downturn that saw the S&P 500 slice through its 200-day moving average of 3,941 and close near its low for the session in a steady sell-off that involved most stocks. The bank stocks sold off sharply amid concerns about rising rates, higher deposit costs, and weaker loan demand that collided with the news that the Silvergate Capital is voluntarily liquidating Silvergate Bank and that the SVB Financial, which is Silicon-based uh, Va- Va- Valley Bank, uh, is seeking to raise capital as it had been elevated cash burn from its clients. The latter triggered worries that the state of uh, deposit ta- ba- bases and capital positions for smaller banks that drove concerted selling interest in that space. The added angst of the day price action was the understanding that something typically breaks when the Fed is in an aggressive tightening cycle and that the banks, whether they are the specific problem in that regard will likely get pulled into it nonetheless given their lending role. It was striking too that treasury yields moved noticeably lower yet stocks did not respond in opposite kind to that move implying that the move in treasuries was more of a flight to safety than anything else. So following Thursday's economic data we saw that initial jobless claims for the week ending of March 4th increased to 21,000 to 211,000 Continuing claims for the week ending February 25th increased by 69,000 to 1.1781 million. These are the highest claim levels since last December. And the key takeaway from the report is that it teased the prospect of some softening in the labor market as it marked the first initial claims reading above 200,000 in eight weeks. Still, it can be said that current claims level remains in a zone that is indicative of a tighter labor market overall. And natural gas inventories. Uh, also saw a slight change. And on Friday, the stock market suffered sizable losses. The employment report brought relatively good news with non-farm payrolls being stronger than expected, average hourly earnings growth being weaker than expected, but the dealings involving the SVB Financial, which again, Silicon Valley Bank, were the biggest driver of Friday's price action. A broad retreat saw the S&P 500 drop below 3,900 on their average volume. SVB Financial Silicon Valley Bank was shut down by the FDIC, created a deposit insurance bank of Santa Clara to protect insured depositors. uh, The news followed earlier reports that the Founders Fund had advised companies to pull their money from the bank. According to Bloomberg, and the deposit outflows at SVB were outpacing the sales process, i.e. the reports that larger banks had reportedly been looking to buy SVB, but their willingness to do so diminished as the bank's deposits went away, according to CNBC. And SVB's financial troubles created uncertainty about potential effects in the banking industry that fostered a strong flight to safety bid in the Treasury market. Most reporting thus far has highlighted views by analyst pundits that the SVB situation won't prove to be a systemic banking problem, though given how well capitalized the banking system is. That said, the market saw a rebound effect interrupted after it was reported around 1230 Eastern time that Silicon Valley Bank was shut down. The market lost its footing from there as broad-based selling efforts picked up. The S&P 500 went to 3846, which was the lowest of the session. So reviewing Friday's session, we saw non-farm payrolls at a 311,000 come in. Prior was revised to 504,000 from uh, from 517,000 for the month of January. February's non-farm private payrolls were 265,000, and that had been revised. Uh, prior was also revised. Federal's unemployment rate of 3.6 percent in January was 3.4, so a little bit of an increase there. February's average earnings increased two tenths of one percent. 
February's average week work was 34 and a half hours. That for the month of January was 34.7. And the key takeaway from the report is still strong report at this Fed's tightening cycle and the SVIP. SIVB issue is causing notable distraction. The strength of the report, uh, in our estimation, is still enough to keep the 50 basis rate hike on the table for the March meeting. And looking at the year-to-date, we now have the Dow Jones Industrial Average down 3.7% for the year. The NASDAQ is up 6.4%. The S&P is barely above break-even at up 0.6%. And the Russell 2000 is barely above break-even at 0.7%. And looking very quickly at some of our high-frequency data, we saw initial jobless claims at 211,000. That was an increase of 11.1%. The continuing jobless claims, 1,718,000. That was also an increase of 4.2%. Box office receipts for the week ending March 9th were up 17%. Railcar traffic for March 3rd were up 3.3%. Steel production as of March 6th was down 6 tenths of 1%. Hotel occupancy for the week ending March 4th of of this year is up 62.8%. That was down 2.2% from the previous week. Uh, uh, Restaurant uh, operational state as of March 9th, up 12.4%. TSA checkpoint as of March 9th, 2,207,970 passengers a day. That was a 9 tenths of 1% increase. Supply of motor gasoline as of March 3rd was down about 6%. And global commercial flights as of March 9th, 108,725 a day. And that was a drop of 6 tenths of 1%. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here at KGMI. We'll be back shortly. Men over 45, do you have a frequent, urgent need to urinate or a weak flow? Do you suffer from an enlarged prostate or BPH? Want to learn about alternatives to BPH medication and major surgery? How? The Urolift system. The Urolift system is an in-office, minimally invasive procedure. It reopens the channel with no cutting and provides rapid symptom relief with no new sustained erectile or ejaculatory dysfunction as shown in a clinical study. Call Bellingham Urology Group about the Eurolift system today at 360-714-3400. Most common side effects are temporary and can include discomfort when urinating, urgency, inability to control the urge, pelvic pain, and some blood in the urine. Rare side effects, including bleeding and infection, may lead to a serious outcome and may require intervention. For more information, call Bellingham Urology Group, located in Bellingham, or their new office in Mount Vernon at 360-714-3400 and online at bellinghamurologygroup.com. Hello, folks. Are you ready to get your estate planning affairs in order, but you don't know where to start? Would you like to hear about the difference between wills and trusts? Do you want to learn how to avoid probate? Do you have questions about Social Security and Medicare? Is it important to you to make life as easy as possible on your spouse and loved ones if something should happen to you? This is Phil George. I'm an elder law and estate planning attorney here in Bellingham. Join me right here on KGMI every Saturday at 1 p.m. for the Aging Hour, and let me show you how to set your family up for success in your retirement. This is Steve Berger, Lead Counselor and Director of Contact Counseling Recovery Services. Despite being a fourth-generation Whatcom County resident from a solid, established family, when I was struggling with alcohol and drug addiction, my family didn't know where to turn to help. By the grace of God and a recovery program, I was able to get sober and have devoted the last 34 years of my life helping others find recovery from addiction. If you or a family member is struggling with substance abuse, please contact us at 360-671-3277 or contactcounseling.com. We don't have the usual traffic jams that they have in the big city, but sometimes things happen to snarl everything up. Depend on KGMI to keep you cruising to your destination with KGMI Traffic Alerts. We'll tell you where the trouble spots are and see problems on the road. Give us a call at 360-676-5464 so we can spread the word. KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM and KGMI.com. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Don't worry about your furnace on the coldest days of the year. Talk with West Mechanical, your independent train dealer, about replacing your old inefficient furnace with a train comfort system. Today, find them at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. 
CBS News Brief. Severe weather continues to hit California hard. The storm system being blamed for at least two deaths. Evacuation orders are in place in some spots, but CBS's Steve Futterman tells us... This woman is staying put. You know, I'm prepared. I have plenty of food. As long as the power doesn't go out, I'm good. Many people are placing sandbags in front of their homes, hoping it will prevent water from coming inside. Our Nancy Cordes reports on the fall of the Silicon Valley Bank. The nation's 16th largest bank collapsed within hours, leaving customers in limbo and forcing federal regulators to swoop in. In Texas, three women are facing legal action for helping a friend get abortion pills. A statement from his attorney says anyone involved in distributing or manufacturing abortion pills in Texas will be sued into oblivion. That includes CVS and Walgreens. It's reporter Chris Fox in Austin, CBS News Brief. I'm Stacy Lynn. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. Welcome back to Welcome Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning here in KGMI. I get a lot of different material I look at every week and talk about. I'm going to talk a little bit about... Uh, what's happening with our S&P 500 earnings uh, rates. And uh, basically, we've headed into the close of the fourth quarter of 22 uh, reporting season. And we thought it's a good time to look at the percentage of S&P 500 index companies that have exceeded their quarterly earnings estimates. And equity analysts adjust their corporate earnings estimates on an ongoing basis. Regardless of whether they adjust their estimates up or down, companies typically have a consensus target number or a range to hit. So from the fourth quarter of 2018 through the fourth quarter of last year, that's 17 quarters altogether, the average earnings beat for the companies that comprise the index was 76.1%. That means 76.1% did better than they were expected, notably higher than the 67.3% beat rate that was for 480 companies that reported results for the fourth quarter. So again, about almost 10% higher over that longer period of time. Only one of the last six quarterly beat rates, and that was in the third quarter of 21, exceeded the 80% mark. At 67.3%, the earnings beat rate for the fourth quarter is the lowest rate that we have seen since the first quarter of 2020, which was basically the start of covid And the S&P 500 index posted a cumulative total return of 41.8% for that period. And that was between uh, September 28th of 18 and December 30th of last year. And information technology, uh, basically 78.87%, consumer discretionary 77.5%, healthcare 75.41% were the highest earnings beat rates in the fourth quarter. And the S&P 500 Dow Jones indices, and that was according to Dow Jones S&P 500, and communication services had the lowest beat rate, where only 47.83% of the companies actually beat their expected rates. So the takeaway is is it's been reported as it comes to positive surprises. Earnings have been a mere 1.6% above estimates for the fourth quarter. The figure is the lowest that it's been in 15 years. Furthermore, earnings quality appears to be weakening. Bloomberg reported that every dollar of profits, 0.88%, was matched by cash outflows, the biggest discrepancy since at least 1990. And on a dollar basis, Bloomberg's 22, 23, and 24 consensus earnings per share estimates for the S&P stood at 222.4, 220.5, and 245.5, respectively. So a little drop and then a little bit of an increase after that. Well, I'm going to spend bulk of the rest of the show today talking about some of the tax proposals, budget proposals that we're seeing come out and what some of the impacts are going to be, what potentially what it could be. And one of those is a proposal by the Biden administration that capital gains tax be basically taxed at 45%. And... um, that's basically a soak the rich budget, basically. And he's proposed a series of tax increases on investors and top earning Americans in his annual budget request to Congress. The tax proposals, which are the center of the White House estimates of a $3 trillion deficit reduction plan, will be immediately rejected by congressional Republicans. But the idea set up Democrats' approach to the debt ceiling fight later this year. 
as Republicans are gearing up to ask for spending cuts. One of the biggest changes would be nearly doubling the capital gains tax, applying an additional surcharge to fund Medicare that would mean taxes on investments could rise to almost 45%. So here are some details of the budget request from the Biden administration. Basic capital gains. The budget proposal will increase capital gains rate from 39.6% from to 39.6% from 20% for people earning at least a million dollars to equalize the taxation on investment and wage income. So basically, wages and investments will be tasked equally. Biden is also proposing to increase the 3.8% Obama Medicare tax to 5%. That's a surcharge, and that would be applied to those earning at least $400,000. And that would be used to shore up the Medicare trust fund. I'm going to talk about that here in a minute as well. And that would mean the richest taxpayers would pay a 44.6% federal rate on investment income and other earnings. Then there's a billionaire's tax. He's proposing a 25% minimum tax on the wealthiest one-tenth of 1% of taxpayers. That would mean that many of the richest Americans who currently pay about an 8% rate on their incomes because of tax preferences that allow them to cut their IRS bills (coughs) would face significant tax increases. Now, you got to make this point. Billionaires don't pay taxes. They collect them from you, and then they pay them. Income taxes. He's proposing to raise the top personal rate to 39.6 from 37 for those making more than 400000 That higher rate would reverse a cut signed into law by President Trump. In addition, they're proposing to expanding the Obamacare net investment income tax, which is currently 3.8%. Again, that's that increase to 5%. It also applies to all incomes without loopholes, not just investment proceeds over 40000 according to the White House. So basically, a 5% flat tax on all earnings over 400000 would go to support Medicare. Corporate taxes. President Trump's 2017 corporate tax rate cut would get rolled back significantly from bringing the top rate to 28% from 21%. The proposal also calls to increase the taxes on U.S. companies owned on their foreign earnings to 21%, doubling the 10.5% included in the previous tax law. And carried interest, this is a tax break that's used by private equity fund managers to lower their tax bills, would be eliminated under the Biden plan. Under current law, investment fund managers can pay 20% capital gains rate on a portion of their incomes that would otherwise be subject to that 37% higher higher rate. I guess that might be one proposal that, frankly, I do agree with. And then crypto losses. The budget would eliminate a tax break for crypto investors that allow them to sell assets at a loss, generating tax breaks, and then immediately repurchasing those currencies. This would apply a restriction to crypto holders that is already in place for those who invest in the stock market and other securities, which requires them to report excessive losses. And then rich retirement accounts, it, there's basically a loophole that allows the wealthiest, one of those being billionaire Peter Thiel, to accumulate savings in tax-favored retirement accounts intended for middle earners. He would limit the amount of taxpayers with incomes of over 400000 that can hold in a Roth individual account. So incomes over 400000 would basically be restricted from having Roth IRAs. It doesn't make any difference that they paid tax on that money to put the money in the Roth in the first place. Then there's real estate. The budget proposal would eliminate a tax break known as like-kind exchanges. It's basically 1031 exchanges. That allows investors to avoid paying taxes on proceeds of a property sale if they reinvest those properties back into real estate. This is currently only available to real estate investors, so they're trying to take away the 1031 exchange. And oil and gas. Tax preferences for fossil fuels be cut under the Biden plan. Oil and gas companies have recorded record profits in recent years but have failed to invest in production. Instead, in prioritizing stock buybacks, according to the White House, truth of the matter is they haven't maybe put the money back into production simply because they are not able to, in many cases, build the pipeline that they need to build to move that oil if they were to spend the money. And okay, so let's talk about this Medicare tax hike a little bit more. They basically want to tax those with earnings over $400,000 to shore up Medicare. Uh, it's projected to hit insolvency in 28 or 29. The, uh, he raised the Medicare tax from 38 to 5% on incomes over 400000 
The budget proposal will also eliminate a tax loophole that business owners and high earners use to avoid paying those taxes. Basically, the Medicare Hospital Trust Fund, known as Part A, covers hospital stays, nursing facilities, hospice care. It could reach insolvency in just five years, according to the most recent Medicare trustees report. Biden's plan is also designed to help bolster Medicare reserves by $200 billion over the next 10 years by allowing insurers to negotiate down costs of more prescription medications. The uh, tax increase is virtually no change in pa- a chance of passing the GOP majority in the House. It provides both Biden and Democrats the opportunity to hone their message and shoring up Medicare by putting the burden on the wealthy. The Democrats hope that Biden's budget will reduce the deficit by $2 trillion over the next 10 years, according to preliminary scoring of the Congressional Budget Office. Also, it provide election year talking points for their desire to keep Medicare benefits free from benefit cuts. So we'll see where this goes. Anyway, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said since January that he wants to make cuts in Medicare and Social Security off the table. In other words, he does not want to cut those benefits. And... Um, He's also stressing that they want to, they do want to make some commitments on spending cuts. The debt ceiling showdown is looming because the federal government will run out of cash to pay its bills sometime between July and September of this year. McCarthy has also said he doesn't want a clean debt limit increase without also negotiating a cut in current fiscal year overall spending. Democrats, however, have vowed that they won't negotiate around the country's borrowing limit. The CBO reported the deficit projections over the next 10 years have uh, grown 20% to $3.1 trillion. I'm going to spend some time talking about that here in the next segment. Uh, just since May, the surge in government spending due to new laws, inflation, and interest payments, the fiscal 23 deficit is now expected to come in $1.41 trillion. <coughs> That's $426 billion higher than they forecast last year. And McCarthy told CNBC on Monday morning, that growing interest costs like the $10.5 trillion on interest of the government will spend over the next decade is his primary concern. He says it's going to break America. He said every great society collapsed when they overextend themselves, and this is why it is so critical that it be addressed. So Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live. We'll be back shortly. You're used to bundling up this time of year, but outside, not in your own home. Hi, Joe T. in here for my friends at West Mechanical, heating, air conditioning, and electric, your independent train dealer. You won't have to wear a bulky sweater inside with a new train heating system that's a perfect fit. Their pros analyze your home and give you an honest assessment of your best options. And West Mechanical has some great financing options for up to 72 months. Subject to credit approval, call for details. If your system is still working, regular service by the West Mechanical pros will keep it in top condition for its longest life possible. And it's not too late to schedule an appointment. They check and service mine each year, and I'm confident we'll be comfortable all season long. The train comfort specialists at West Mechanical are the best of the best, and they back up their work with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Get to know the great folks at West Mechanical today at westmechanical.net. That's westmechanical.net. And remember, it's hard to stop a train. You go to great lengths to keep your carpet clean. Kids, get out of the living room. You spend your days scolding loved ones. Honey, take your shoes off. Trying to create an invisible shield to keep all the dirt and stains out. Welcome to our home. And just please stay on the plastic, okay? From summer's barbecue stains to your kids' dirty cleats, call Swans today or visit them online at swanscarpetcleaning.com. This is Tom Borthwick, the Diamond King. You think about your lady every 20 minutes. You think of how wonderful you are together and how she supports you and loves you every day. It's time to show her what you think about her and how much you love her. Right now is the perfect time because Diamond Days is on now at Borthwick Jewelers. 40% off certified diamonds, 33% off engagement rings, and 20% off semi-mounts at Borthwick Jewelers in Ferndale. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Welcome back. Saturday morning on KGMI. If you got questions for me, you can always give me a call, 360-733-1200. I'm going to spend some time. I got six charts this week that came out talking about what spending, taxes, and deficits 
basically what we're looking at, how they're going to affect us. And the Biden administration on Thursday released an outline of its 24 budget. As expected, it promotes some big government agenda from the last year, which the country desperately needs to avoid. Uh, beneath this spin, the ultimate message is that it thinks the federal government doesn't have enough power and control over families and businesses. So these charts basically are uh, based on updated uh, information from the nonpartisan congressional budget office that shows just how much the narrative, where the narrative is, and why America needs exactly the opposite from its leaders. So for more than 50 years prior to COVID-19 pandemic, federal government spending averaged a whisker over 20% of the economy. In other words, the government spent about 20% of what the economy generated every year. That temporarily spiked above 30% in 2020 and 21 due to the immense and extremely wasteful spending spree that was spree by Congress, which has also contributed to the high inflation rates that we're seeing today. The country's on a course to return uh, that excessive level of spending without war, recession, or pandemic as the underlying cause. The maintaining the status quo, allowing benefit and, and other programs to grow faster in the economy is going to make emergency levels of spending the new normal. There, we have... Um, a chart here that shows that uh, that percentage of spending, like I said, kept really very, very level for over for, for more than fifty years. So from about two thousand about nineteen seventy up to two thousand and twenty, very level. Then it jumped up to almost thirty two percent. It is projected uh, federal revenue between now and two thousand fifteen is is projected to be about nineteen percent of the uh, total GDP. So over the next, you know, 20 years, 30 years, uh, federal revenue is still expected to run about 19%. However, federal spending is expected to go up to as high as 30.2%. So that deficit is going to be really increased. It's looking at a $2 trillion or almost a $10 trillion. Um, let's see. The uh, spending above the baseline by uh, one, it's over about 1.85 trillion over the next decade. The problem is even worse. Envisions a mind-boggling 10 trillion dollars in, in spending more by 2033. Then there was a chart here that talks about do the rich pay their fair share? And so let's take a look at this, starting out by looking at income groups. And basically, the bottom 50 percent of the population. Uh, earns about 10% of the overall income and averages about 42.2 or about $42,200 a year. And uh, they pay right now about 9% of the income taxes. I'm sorry, the 10% pay about 2% of the income tax. The bottom uh, 10%, uh, 50% that are earning about, uh, right around 42000 a year pay an average of about 2% of the uh, income taxes. Then those between 42,200 and 86,000 basically are about 19% of the population, and they pay 9% of the income taxes at the present time. The next tier is between 86,000 and 152,000 in income. They comprise about 21% of the population, so that means 21% of the population is making between 86 and 150,000 roughly. And that group of the population pays about 15% of the income taxes. Then there's a group that uh, pay between, earn between 152000 and 221000 a year. That's about 11% of the total population. They also pay about 11% of the taxes. Then we start getting the top 2 to 5% of the population. Those people are earning between 221000 and 546000 a year. They comprise about 16% of the population, and they're actually paying about 20% of all the income taxes. Then you get into the top 1%. Those are people that are earning over $548,000 a year, but they are actually paying 42% of all of the income taxes currently being paid. So basically right now, the... Um, the top 1% of households pay more income tax than the bottom 90% combined, and they pay roughly twice as much in taxes relative to their share of income. 
So when we keep hearing all these talks about tax the rich and they're not paying enough, the top 1% earning over 548000 is is 22% of all the income but paying 42% of the income. Now you have to figure those people that are making that money are also in charge of creating jobs so that that other end of the population can have a job and make money and pay taxes as well. Let's also talk then about drivers of growing spending. And basically, um, federal spending is projected to grow much faster than the economy. Uh, a full 79% uh, would arise from net interest payments, Social Security, and Medicare. So we are looking, but in the next 10 years, they'd see a 79% increase in, from net interest payments, Social Security, and Medicare costs. Many politicians want to ignore this. They want to pretend the solution is to raise taxes while refusing to take any meaningful action in order to reform any of these benefits. So if we break this down, we're going to see a 79% increase in the next 10 years in that growing. 30% will go to health care. 27% will go to Social Security. Interest is going to eat up about 21%. Discretionary is 17 And the other mandatory budget expenses are only 4% of the total spending. And let's sit down here and take a look at the current U.S. budget uh, versus family budget. And the median or average family income in the United States for 2022 was 70784000 just just short of 71000 That was the median income. And if a family spent money like the federal government spends money, they would need to earn about $90,663 a year. Which means that in 2022, the family that's earning out there on the average would be going in debt, an average of about $19,879 in credit card debt. So the average family earns about 71000 If they spent money like the government, they would have to earn almost 91000 That means that they'd have to spend almost $20,000 a year going into credit and going into debt. Now, this is despite the fact that they already have a debt of $447,142. That's the average debt per family that is built up already in the national debt. The $32 trillion that we know, there's another money on the federal balance sheet. It's just uh, it's rather, rather shocking when you sit down and put those numbers together in those kind of projections. Then I have another chart. It talks about the interest costs is a major share of a major burden of the percentage of GDP. And we're seeing that that also, it's been uh, the the Washington insiders, basically they assume low interest rates would be around forever. With interest rates rising, the country is faced with the prospect of dedicating more than $1 trillion per year to interest payments by the end of the decade and trillions more per year after that. Servicing federal debt will soon be an anchor dragging in the economy, steadily eroding the growth, prosperity that take for granted. Any attempt to artificially push interest rates down would threaten to make inflation worse, squeezing families on both sides. And then we have another one over here about unsustainable budget deficits. And basically, the 50-year average, uh, we find that deficits, the percentage of GDP, have gone up about 2.9% a year. So not a real fun number, which kind of brings me to a statement that I found here from Jerry Grantham. He says, profit margins are probably the most meaning reverting series in finance. And if profit margins do not mean revert, then something else has gone bad and wrong with capitalism. He said, for the record, I truly favor both capitalism and profits. The point here is that profits have an economic function High profit margins signal opportunity exists in this sector or place, thereby drawing competitors to offer better products and prices. Consumers, i.e. all of us, enjoy the benefit. It's how capitalism should work, but recently hasn't. He said the easy money era sent the wrong signals to politicians, making debt temporarily less daunting and encouraging all kinds of wasteful spending. Worst government at all levels didn't do what should have been made perfect sense. They didn't lose low long-term rates to finance much-needed infrastructure repairs and improvements. So now we're stuck with substandard roads, bridges, utilities, and other growth-inhibiting messes. 
Now we add this inflation pressure to grow out of COVID, supply chain snafus, travel restrictions, and demographically driven labor shortage. The inflation we see now makes perfect sense. The Fed and other central banks didn't cause the pandemic, and they established the conditions that let, let, let it have these effects. Worst of all, the financial repression favored investors but also punished savers. Not so long ago, one could accumulate a nest egg, invest in simple, low-risk bonds, and generate good income. That became impossible under ZERP and also still is today since inflation has overwhelmed the benefit of higher yields. It left many retirees in desperate positions. It hasn't been an accident. It was planned, intentional policy that started badly and only got worse. And I think that's a good comment about where we are right now and what's happening and how we're spending money. Something we need not be afraid to talk about because it's real. So Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here on KGMI. Again, if you got questions for me, give me a call, 360-733-1200. And don't forget our show tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. We'll talk about some more of the economic data that came in for this week. Thanks and have a great week. voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, a registered investment advisor.